Hello, heroes, and welcome to Session Zero, a podcast exploring role-playing through a psychological perspective. I'm Porter Green. And I'm Steve Discont. And today we will be discussing colonialism. Hey, heroes. Gen Con is right around the corner and we'll be doing a panel there this year. We are scheduled for Thursday, August 1st at 3 o'clock p.m., where we will be exploring the mental health depictions at the table. Aaron Katano Saez and Adira Slattery from the One Shot Network will be helping us teach everyone how to roleplay mental illness in a non-problematic way. The event may be sold out in the system, but we encourage you to still come by just in case there are any last-minute open seats. See you there! Now, before we get started on talking about colonialism, which is a very loaded topic, I would like to introduce the heroes to a special guest that we have today. Uh, Yay, guest episode. Yeah. Uh, so I would like to introduce James Mendez Hodes. Welcome to our show. Hey, what's good? Uh, Mendez, tell us about yourself. Why are you awesome? Uh, well, now that you've set the bar really high, <laughs> uh, I am I'm a writer, editor, and developer of tabletop role-playing games. Uh, I also work as a cultural consultant, both in and outside analog gaming. And for those of you who have not heard that term before, the the facetious way of describing what a cultural consultant does is people pay me to tell them that they're racist. <laughs> and this is only a slight exaggeration. I want that job. I, everyone wants that job. And I'm the one who has it. Uh, so, yeah, um, I work as a cultural consultant uh, helping other content creators make make works that are validating and positive for people of various different identities. My specialties uh, tend to be race, culture, and religion, but cultural consulting also touches on issues like ability, gender, sexuality, age, all types of different things. Could you give an example for the heroes on what it would look like when you come in and do cultural consulting, like some of the content that you've, that might need your assistance? Uh, yeah, sure. So for example, one thing that I might point out, okay, so cultural consulting, uh, usually, usually it's not like, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Not saying I'm about to, but it might happen. Yes. You may swear on this podcast. Okay. I will, I will attempt not to nonetheless, but (laughs) usually cultural consulting isn't me sitting down with, with somebody and pointing to the book that they gave me and being like, you're a terrible racist and you need to rethink all your life choices and go home and think about the fact that black people are, are people actually. Usually it's not quite that blatant or easy from my perspective, maybe not from their perspective. A lot of the kind of thing that I do is highlighting, for example, Eurocentric biases in how people are presenting things. Like if you're talking about a situation where there are European people and not European people, Traditionally, in English language and in the West, we present that material from the perspective of Westerners, Europeans, Americans, white people, anyone who falls into the empowered default in our society. So one of the things that I do is pointing out ways in which works uh, conform to that kind of mindset. Like if we're talking about, say, the Revolutionary War, and you're talking about how a certain event affected people. Most of the time when you hear about the Revolutionary War in, for example, school history class, you hear about how it affected the American revolutionaries and how it affected the uh, British loyalists. 
and then how American Indians feel about that is kind of an afterthought. So mm. I would point out like, hey, so this is a point where uh, maybe you can look up the local Lenape responses to this political act. How did that work for their political organization? How did they feel about that? And maybe we can rearrange the material here so that the Lenape perspective comes first and then the American and European perspectives, they come after that. Or maybe we can talk about this this event in a way that kind of casts a wider net and is less peculiar to um, the needs and concerns of like one or the other side of white people in this situation. Uh, so yeah, so there's a lot of pointing out weird little things that uh, slip under people's radar because they aren't something that people thought to, they don't know what they don't know and they don't know that um, these are things that they necessarily need to to look out for. And so I, I point out that kind of thing. There's a million tiny little cultural norms that we don't even think about that show up all the time. Yeah. Like I downloaded a silly phone game the other day and they were doing the tutorial and they had the woman tune be the first cook and the man tune be the first like martial person to defend the castle. And I was like, why? Why are we gendering this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that kind of stuff comes up a lot. And the reason that I'm pointing out this like this weird little Eurocentric thing is that it seems like it's a less big deal than someone coming and saying like hideous, reprehensible things about such and such a, a skin color or whatever. But I think like the vast majority of what I have to deal with is like thousands of little things instead of one big thing. And those little things add up. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we're going to talk about probably later in the episode, um, this uh, this gigantic reality of colonialism is made of like a thousand little jabs and pokes and cuts. And those things are often more dangerous than the big things because it's easier to get them in under the radar of people who care about stuff like racism or colonialism, but might not be as practiced as I am in noticing those kinds of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, those like, you know, we often call them microaggressions, those microaggressions Mm -hmm. in, I'd say in polite society when, you know, we're not out on the streets trying to trying to kill each other. In polite society, the microaggressions are often more dangerous than the regular aggressions. Absolutely, because the microaggressions are what reduces safety, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how you know that whatever environment you're in, you're not really safe to be without it being strategic all the time. Well, also invalidating yeah. uh, the experiences of those who are the targets of them or the recipients of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that, after you. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, so, you know, you, you, you were talking about these thousand cuts and how they bring together into this concept of colonialism and how it kind of forms together. I was wondering if you could help us in educating our listeners about what colonialism is at its core. Uh, sure. I would say that colonialism is a process by which uh, one people asserts sovereignty over another, generally by force or coercion or really usually both. And it leads to them stealing land, natural resources, culture, and, uh, and lives. Colonialism divides the world into humans and natives. And it relies on uh, systems which use many small innocuous forms of aggression, like what we've just been describing, to support major ones. So I'm really curious what – I'm going to turn this one over to Porter. Mm-hmm. Um, that idea of dividing the world between humans and natives – have you encountered this in any of the the readings that you've done within the psychology literature or in the work that you've done? Oh, sure. I mean, that comes back to like the very fundamental sort of human group thought processes, right? There's always us and them. 
whatever that us and them might be. And there's kind of like a sociological evolutionary components to that, right? We have the people that we know, that we understand, that we can predict, and the people that we don't know and that are foreign to us either because they're, they speak a different language, they're not part of our small neighborhood we grew up in, or they're outside of our explored and known experiences. Mm-hmm. So we have sort of an instinctive sort of distrust of the other because it's not predictable. Our minds really like things to be predictable and known. So we know roughly how everyone around us is going to act and how we can respond to them to keep ourselves safe and cared for and part of the group. Now, just because we have that as a part of us and it makes sense from that perspective does not mean that it has to control our actions. And for most people in society that work on this stuff, we try to have it not control our actions. We try to realize that a stranger may be a little bit less familiar, but not necessarily dangerous, mm-hmm. right? So that's sort of the underpinning of where a lot of this stuff comes from, is people not ever questioning that feeling of discomfort or not ever questioning that if something makes them feel a little uncomfortable because it's different, that they should then isolate themselves from it. Mm-hmm. Mendez, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, um, I think that this process of othering is... It's uh, it's really integral to colonial systems of power and almost everything, like every kind of identity that I talk about uh, or that I work with in the process of cultural consulting and also, you know, writing and editing and developing games. All of the forms of aggression, offensive or defensive that I run into rely on someone getting othered at some point in mm-hmm. some way. Mm. And sometimes that's like a defensive reaction, but uh, often in the in the case of colonialism specifically, when we're talking about colonial, not just racism, but colonialism in like an imperialist context specifically, uh, that othering is an aggressive process. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found these people, they got stuff we want, so we're going to aggressively other them. Mm. And we're going to spread that idea of othering through our society so that even the people who aren't actively involved in the killing people and taking their stuff that is such a big part of colonialism, even those people are going to feel defensive about these people. They're going to feel like uh, they're a threat because they're uh, they're savages or heathens or any number of other uh, reprehensible concepts. Mm-hmm. So we're going to push that idea both back into our own society and forward into somebody else's so that it becomes okay to visit violence and domination upon them. And then when we visit violence and domination upon them, we can exploit them for all types of things which make our lives more convenient. So one thing I was reading about in prep for this uh, this episode was that even though often colonialism, we look at it from a Eurocentric perspective, that there are also there's intercultural colonialism that occurs as well mm-hmm. yes is that something you could that you could speak about uh yeah definitely so throughout history there have been lots and lots of different colonial powers and uh, you know in the modern day uh, and living in america it's uh it's easiest to highlight european colonial powers as the major threat but historically people of color do this to other people of color also and you know, it's a different world now than it once was. Um, there have been other times in there have been other times in world history when the biggest colonial powers were from Central Asia, or they were from East Asia, or various places in the Middle East. So some of the you know there were colonial powers in the past, including you know the the great Mongol cognates and the the biggest contiguous land empire in the history of the world uh, was Chinggis Khan's back in like the the twelve hundreds, although you know that it was it was huge and it was really impressive, although it it fractured after a little while, um, and that's why we have so much Mongolian influence throughout 
everywhere from Eastern Europe through East Asia and then South even into India. So the Mongol Empire was a colonial power. China, Mm. uh, Han China was a colonial power. And uh, it still is actually because there are lots and lots of indigenous people in China Mm -hmm. and ethnic minorities who have to deal with violence and marginalization and internment uh, coming from the Chinese government. I was actually going to ask about the Han Chinese because I know that there are significant Han Chinese uh, populations within like Thailand, Vietnam as well. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that kind of reminded me of that. Right. And this, also the same people, uh, you always have to look at context and you always have to look at the systems of power that are peculiar to the place you're from because, yes, the Han Chinese are a major colonial power and they're putting a lot of pressure and inflicting, you know, violence on the the Uyghur mm-hmm. uh, ethnic minority and many other indigenous uh, minorities throughout China. Um, they've historically exerted colonial pressure against uh, in in various different directions against Mongolia, and then uh, now they're in this weird sort of suzerainty situation with North Korea, and that's a that's a a major reality and uh, Han Chinese people are in positions of power and they're controlling the systems of oppression in a lot of the world. But that does not mean that a Han Chinese person who comes to the United States isn't going to face uh, racism and discrimination and violence because of who they are. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that uh, the Han Chinese uh, minority in the Philippines, uh, for example, isn't going to face discrimination and strange treatment because they're a, they're a market-dominant minority. And by the same token, Filipinos who are often in a position uh, to discriminate against uh, Han Chinese people when the Filipinos are the market-dominant minority traveling through the Middle East or uh, the United States or something like that, then um, they receive that kind of the, that similar kind of treatment. So... I'm not about I'm not out here to say like reverse racism is real. That's <laughs> neither are we. I, yeah, like reverse racism is still pretty much only a thing I, I ever say as a joke. But yeah, it's important to recognize that anyone who is empowered in any given situation may not feel the same way, uh, may not be in the same position of power when uh, they're in a different context. That said, uh, you still have to look at your present context first and foremost when you're trying to deal with reducing harm in a situation. Absolutely. And it's interesting, too, that one of the places that I see what I would consider colonials thought the most is the idea of minorities stealing our resources. Yeah. Like stealing our resources back is a really common thing that we see in like how we construct isms in this country, for example, or that you'll see if you're sitting in a client session and someone's talking about their own experiences like from a majority perspective, yeah, I'm often having to sort of talk and help people process through the idea of I'm going to lose something if somebody else gains something. And that feels like very mm. colonialist thought to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the United States also is the United States is in an interesting, quote unquote, interesting, in an interesting position uh, with regard to colonialism, because the United States has also created this nation of immigrants mm-hmm. and the like let's be clear the dynamic of people coming to the united states as refugees or immigrants and uh, attempting to find a better life in the us by taking advantage of various uh, of various comforts and securities which are present in the united states that that happened because of colonialism absolutely like we aren't just like it's not like settlers are coming here it's not like mexicans are coming across the border to colonize us and subjugate us to um, the throne of Mexico. 
that's all happening because we're exerting colonial pressure economically and martially uh, throughout the world. And the United States is built on the only reason we're in a position to be complaining about immigrants in the first place is that the United States was a colonial power which stole literally its entire territory mm-hmm. uh, from indigenous people through violence, coercion, and treachery. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's that's what gives us the privilege to be able to sit here and say, oh my God, these, these immigrants are coming in and taking our resources. Mm-hmm. Really, how'd you get those resources? Well, it's interesting the way that you've come about that because it, it reminds me just about how we experience even colonialist thought within the social sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of presence within sociology, cultural anthropology. I mean, cultural anthropology is mm-hmm. horrifically guilty of it. Uh, but even in psychology where a lot of times we have taken, and when I say we, I say broadly the field, which is, predominantly, as we've talked about, Eurocentric, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the the major research for a long time came out, came out of Western Europe and the United States, yep. uh, that the theories that were being developed were being applied to other cultures and to other marginalized groups. And in uh, the social sciences, we refer to this as what's known as an etic or ETIC perspective. And this implies that you are developing a theory um, from outside of a culture or you're taking it from your own and you're applying it elsewhere. You're imposing this etic. Uh, these understandings, these theories that you have about how a culture should function mm-hmm. and applying it elsewhere, whether that's accurate or not. Yeah. Psychology is incredibly, incredibly rife with this in our history and our roots. It's getting better, but mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I th- and we, we definitely see that. For example, you know, with my field in industrial organizational psychology, we have understandings that often Western psychologists we're coming in and saying, well, here is really how organizational cultures function. Here is the best styles of leadership that work. But researchers like, for example, uh, Roya Amon from Illinois Institute of Technology, uh, shout out to my former program director as she now is running our master's program. Roya has done work focusing on multicultural IO psych and has done work exploring how things are different for leaders in organizations in Mexico, as well as in Thailand, as well as in Iran, exploring exactly how the culture is different there. And what she's trying to do is take what's known as an emic perspective, which instead means you are trying to go within the culture and build a theory directly within that culture rather than from the outside. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you aren't taking that colonialist view where you're going from the outside saying, well, this is the theory and we're going to shove it against it and hope that it works. Instead, you're going to that culture and saying, all right, we have some understandings in this case about what leadership styles are, but is there something unique to the experiences of, say, leaders within Iran that are going to be different than those who are in the United States? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's 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 a really, really cool perspective. Uh, I was a religion major in college, which meant that because I, I wasn't doing theology, I was doing non-Western religions, like mostly uh, West African and Afro-Atlantic religion. Uh, so a lot of the sources on West African and Afro-Atlantic religion historically were anthropologists, like classic anthropologists. And Woof. like when I think of classic anthropologists, I think of like the guys in Far Side cartoons with the mm-hmm. with helmets. <laughs> yeah. Blowing up temples to see what's inside there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like going and like living in somebody's hut and like, staring down the back of their neck like hmm uh-huh yes and uh when they eat that yeah and there were anthropologists who started out that way who started to realize i guess towards the end of their careers that like maybe it was a little sketch that they were doing this uh like uh victor turner i think had some kind of revelation 
uh, midway through his career where he he stopped talking about people in the way that he had when he begun his career. And I think a lot of fields uh, like anthropology show their uh, show their colonial roots when you look back at the beginnings of them, as we often have to uh, when we're starting out in them. Um, you know, anthropology starting out as this thing that would happen next to colonialism mm-hmm. with guys like Henry Morton Stanley and Dr. Livingston going into territory, which was either actively being colonized or was the next thing on the slate that we were going to colonize so we could steal their rubber or diamonds or whatever. So anthropology historically was inextricable from uh, the aggressive process of colonialism. Mm -hmm. Um, If I may, I think we're also seeing like attempts to improve on that in psychology as well. Um, One of the examples I like to think about is within the the DSM. Mm -hmm. Uh, From addition to addition, we've seen improvements on trying to acknowledge, for example, psychological unique psychological phenomenon that might be unique to particular cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, if I recall, at least it's been a while, I've not, I'm not read up on the DSM-5, but I know within the DSM-4, there was a whole chapter on culturally specific psychological di- uh, disorders. Mm-hmm. And they definitely kept that in like the sort of the appendices of the DSM-5. There's a whole, the DSM-5 was a total change in how the DSM was structured. And one of the things they did is create a large portion that is sort of, these are things that we don't have like a diagnostic label for, but are diagnostically significant for people. And that's things like culturally specific disorders, things that are systemic in nature that are affecting people. Basically all of the complex trauma responses that, the DSM still refuses to actually label and give diagnostic criteria for research purposes. Uh. I have a whole other episode about that because I'm mad. But <laughs> but yeah, psychology's come a really long way. I mean, we basically started with like, you know, Freud and his mom issues and dad issues and straight up eugenics and moved from there to a broader understanding of, you know, white people and then a broader understanding of all people, hopefully. And someday. now yeah. someday. Yeah. yeah. And now we have like actual theories written by people who are part of the group that they are writing about, which is pretty cool. And it's still something that's only happened probably in the past 20 years. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's something that could, that could have a lot of growing pains for sure in terms of like, well, if we're going to, if we're going to come up with a, a psychological theory of a thing that only happens to a certain culture, that seems both helpful and possibly fraught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still definitely a disproportionate number of white doctors mm-hmm. that are writing all of these criteria because the DSM is actually written by psychiatrists, right? It's a yep. psychologists advise upon it, but psychiatrists write it. And of all of the people who do therapy or therapeutic things, they probably have on average the least actual patient contact. Hmm. So there's some definite issues. <laughs> so uh, just for, I think, for the audience's note, my my husband, who's our, our, our AV guy, just gave quite the d- confused look as he just learned about all this. And if you're making a similar look, it's appropriate because you'd think psychologists would be the one to be establishing this stuff. It's almost like psychologists should be in charge of all of our own things without having to sign off by doctors who get paid more than we do to do less in most treatment places and also control what can be considered evidence-based or not. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, heroes, it looks like we have reached the end of our session. Tune in for the second half of our discussion in two weeks. If you've been enjoying Session Zero and other podcasts on our network, and you value independent creators being able to support themselves and continue to create content for you, consider supporting our network on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Your contributions to the OneShot Network helps us to pay for the studio that we record in, the content that we use to represent our work, 
the hosting of the podcast on the magic internet, and all the spicy water we consume. Becoming a contributor to the One Shot Network Patreon grants you access to bonus content in the network's secret archive, such as some of our personal gaming stories, and possibly some of your favorite network characters on our pretend therapy couch. There are also other perks like the Gifting Book Club, the T-Shirt Club, and many more. Please consider contributing today. Looking for another podcast to listen to? Check out Character Creation Cast. Character Creation Cast is a discussion podcast where Amelia Antrim and Ryan Bolter create characters in multiple RPGs with prominent guests from the game's community. Each month, Character Creation Cast examines the character generation process in depth for a different game with new guests in each series. They always take the time to reflect on the game, its design, and what guests have to say about it. Think of it as sitting in on a great session zero every week. Heroes, we would love to hear from you and hear your ideas about our show. You can find us on Twitter at Session Zero Pod, or you can email us at Session Zero at OneShotPodcast.com. The song you hear right now is Hikari by I Love Brandon off his album Earth and Sky. If you would like to hear more of his work, visit EYELoveBrandon.com or find him on Spotify, SoundCloud, Twitter, or wherever else you like to find your chill beats to listen to podcasts to. Remember, heroes, Session Zero is for sharing information, not for therapy. If you feel like you need support, check out Psychology Today's Find a Therapist database. If you're experiencing a crisis, head into the emergency room or text CONNECT to 741741 from anywhere in the United States. Be safe out there, and we'll see you in the next session.